For March 15th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 663. I don't want to be a Terminator. Hey, it's Overthinking It. I'm Matt. That's Pete. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. (laughs) How are you doing? You know, I've been better, but I'm doing okay. Yeah. Oh, that's the. I mean, that's what can we all do? I, I feel like pandemic okay is a uh, a category of okay that we need to all, you know, we need to all uh, learn learn to accept. Um, you know, and and just like uh, here's a little pandemic tip for you: don't insist that people turn their video on. There you go. Don't insist <laughs> that people turn their video on. You don't know if they, you know, if a baby just threw up on them. You know, you don't know if like they're barely functioning and the, they, they can't bring themselves to like take a shower this week yet. Like maybe they don't want to be looked at. Don't make people turn their <laughs> video on. Let's increase uh, let's increase the compassion. You know, let's increase the the just the allowances for people uh, who are having a hard time, but who are still pandemic. OK, um, how have you been entertaining yourself, Pete, during this uh, during this fun pandemic that we've been? having? Oh, man, have I ever? <laughs> 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 I've told, I mean, I've said many times, uh, largely, I think you, you did. Oh, no, no. You turned me on to only connect. I found out through like online, uh, about the affable British gentleman who solves Sudokus. And, uh, I, I enjoy that so much. Turns out, turns out, Pete. I know I'm answering your question myself, but turns out they actually their YouTube channel was actually originally dedicated to cryptic crosswords. I enjoy cryptic crosswords so much more than Sudoku's because I imagine in a world where I actually played them, where I actually engaged with the challenge. And just to be clear, I don't really do any uh, do either of them like even a little bit well. But uh, I like to think it's it's more possible for me to fantasize that I am better at uh, cryptic crosswords than I am at at Sudoku's. Sudoku, because I am a more of a words guy than a than a numbers guy. So that uh, you know um, that that is uh, great. And I, I God, I like those cryptic crosswords. Anyway, Pete, how have you been entertaining well, yourself over the? So the we have a topic in mind, but I don't want to let this go because I think this is worth touching into <laughs> just at least a little bit. Well, first of all, if you want to get better at Sudoku, have I? I talked about the two YouTube channels about Sudoku that I watched when I was in sort of personal Sudoku boot camp because my wife was so much better at Sudoku than I was. That no, I was we talked. We did this. Uh, we did yeah. this with chess, but we haven't done it. We haven't done it with Sudoku. I'm very like. My 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 big uh, I'll tell you I'll tell you what the problem is Pete you want to know what the problem is <laughs> I'll tell it to, I'll tell it to you right now I'm not visual and so oh. like just processing the grid you know it's not the logic you know it's not the like I I can generally make the logical moves that you need to make it's translating you know, it's translating the the visual representation of the grid into the abstract sort of syntax, you know, the logical syntax in your head that the numbers sort of translate translate into. Like the people I watch on this YouTube channel, you can just say, oh, I have like one through five. Well, I see I can't do it without without thinking it through in advance, but he can just rattle off eight numbers and say what the ninth is. You know, I have three, six, five, eight, two, one, seven, you know, so that's. Two one seven four, <laughs> and, <that's, laughs> and, and so obviously the last one is nine. And it's like, wait, how did you get to that? I can't, I can't see. I, like, a that's a problem, and b I can't like see it. I can't like uh, take it in, especially in rows and columns. Okay, I'm done, Pete. I I, I promise I won't interrupt you ever again <laughs> on the whole podcast. 
<laughs> okay, so okay, first things first. Let me tell you another thing about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All right. So first, wanted to close out one topic. When I wanted to get good at Sudokus, I watched tutorials from two YouTube channels. One was called the Sudoku Guy. And his name is Robin Jarman, and he is an adorable elderly man uh, who has made a whole bunch of Sudoku tutorials. He is goofy as all get out and kind of kind of crazy eyes sometimes with his intense stare as he works on the Sudoku. Wow. But he's he's sort of like he's sort of like the Sudoku version of that guy with all the question marks on his jacket telling you how to get money for the federal government. Uh, (laughs) Unclaimed property. So I'm I'm looking at his website. He looks like a, a slightly more clownish Orville Redenbacher. Yes, exactly. That's his, that's totally his vibe. Like he owns it, right? <laughs> he totally owns it. And so his tutorials are a little bit scattered sometimes because he's got that, that energy to him, but I do enjoy them. And then I watched a bunch of, uh, tutorials from a guy named the Sudoku Swami who has like one tenth of the subscribers as the Sudoku guy. We're talking about, you know, 66,000 versus 6,000. And the Sudoku Swami does not list his name on his about page. And the Sudoku Swami is kind of a little bit meaner and has more of an attitude problem about like you being bad at Sudoku. <laughs> but his tutorials are more thorough and systematic and rational. Uh, so if if you want to, somebody to really explain to you how the different techniques like X-wings and swordfishes and, uh, you know, the I like to call them the pinchy pinches, but that's not what they are. <laughs> all the different all the different advanced techniques. I would suggest those two. But never mind. I'm sure there are better ones. And Cracking the Cryptic, which we both watched, is also a very good YouTube channel. I, I would I would add what I wanted to ask you was, well, A, cryptic crossword, my yeah. understanding is a cryptic crossword is a style of crossword where each clue has two parts that each of which is a clue to the answer in a different way. But if you were to just read the clue in one go, it does not tell you in plain English what the answer is. No, they call right? yeah, they call that the surface. Okay. And so the, the clue has to make sense as a like as a holistic whole, as a as a phrase or as a sentence or something like that. Um, but the two the the two pieces that that is uh, achieved by a kind of remarkable effort of bolting together two disparate pieces, each of which has a very different job. Right. And so one part of the clue tells you by definition what the thing is and the other part tells you via wordplay. You know, right, um, right, right. yeah, anyway, so, uh, yes, uh, that, that is, and, and then together, those two pieces together have to make, uh, have to make a phrase. Now, there are special cases of that that I've discovered. Um, there, there are cases where, uh, it's a double definition mm-hmm. where both parts are, are a definition. And there, there's one called and lit, uh, which I think means and is short for like and literal or something like that. And literally this where the whole thing is the wordplay and the whole thing is the definition. Um, and, and yeah, we can put a video in to, to explain it. Cause without, honestly, without the, the visual stuff, it's impossible to explain. So like, so for example, if the clue was, you know, be me some royal ham and pineapple, the answer would be Kamehameha because it's a beam, but it's also a king of Hawaii. And that's like Hawaiian style pizza or something along those lines, like uh-huh. sort of me. I don't know. So here's my question. Where do you play them in the United States? All of the ones I've heard of are in the UK. I don't know where to find a crypto crossword that I can play. Yeah, the, New, they- the New Yorker published them, but a, a while back, I don't think they publish cryptics anymore. Yeah, I don't think there is a major like newspaper or anything that does a cryptic in the United States. Whereas like it is the, it is the modal crossword in the UK. 
So, okay, if you do a cryptic crossword that you like and you're listening to this podcast, come to our website and leave us a comment to tell us where to find it because I would love to do me some American-style cryptic crosswords. It always gets a little dodgy when it's all British. you got the different spellings. You've got the different cultural references. So uh, as much as I love Only Connect, I, I really don't know my Tory MPs. Yeah, exactly. So I've not been able to uh, to complete a lot of their puzzles and such. So, um, so yeah, if you know, please help us out. Okay, so now to answer your question. I want to answer your question now because now that we've touched on the wonders of Sudoku, cryptic crosswords, and the various mathematical mind calmers from the chaos of the world that we live in, one of the minor hobbies that I've picked up during uh, quarantine, as it were, is watching conference videos from years ago yes. that are posted to the internet, particularly in topics that are not my pro core professional interest, and especially as regards to gaming and game design. So I got, went through all of the online. Well, it started with me going through the um, there was a uh, there's a list. There's a speed running event that happens at a game developing conference every year where people speed run terrible, terrible video games. So I was watching that and it was pretty funny. The Animorphs one was pretty fun, especially. Uh, but then that took me to talks from that same conference. And I watched a whole bunch of game developer conference talks. And I've talked about a couple of them here and there across the podcast. I think one was uh, all advice is bad advice. And we've talked about advice more than once. Uh, in various aspects in the last couple months, and that's come up. But Pete, no one, uh, yeah. no one wrote in to ask for our advice about anything after the the advice episode, which I think you know, I think we should take that as a kind of win. Yeah, it shows that they were listening, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there is a particular talk that I listened to that I wanted to bring up to you, and it's from another. Uh, thinker, I would call him, that I've been wa listening to a lot of his lectures online recently. And this is uh, Matt Colville. Uh, he describes himself in this uh, talk as a community leader. He is what you might call a, uh, well, first of all, first and foremost, he is a dungeon master. He's he's in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, but he's also in the world of video games and in the world of fantasy literature. But he has a YouTube channel where for the most part, he talks about how to be a better dungeon master for Dungeons and Dragons games. And, you know, he has this wide interest in fantasy genre of various sorts that is related to putting together effective games. I feel like having watched so much of it, I'm imitating his voice cadence now. So if you watch him and you can tell that I'm taking pauses where he might, uh, it's it's because I've been been wading through some Matt Colville recently. And I found a talk that Matt Colville gave at Gen Con in 2018, which was about, it was an example of giving an adventure. And we'll link to it in the uh, adventure. It was an example of how to build a Dungeons & Dragons adventure, right? And, and um, the we'll put, a, we'll put a link in the show notes to it. I didn't want to talk about it because of the Dungeons & Dragons adventure. I wanted to talk about it because of some of the ideas that he brings up, which I think you could talk about in the context of any sort of screenwriting uh, or storytelling, uh, you know, uh, conversation, which is the sort of conversation we sometimes have on this podcast. And so I thought it was appropriate. He brought up some ideas that I thought were really cool and interesting, and I wanted to throw them at you, Matt, and see if you had thoughts about them and if we could come to any sort of novel conclusions or take them down any sort of new pathways. Because I think what a lot of it is about is inspiration, right? Finding inspiration for creating things, enjoying things, telling stories, doing stuff. Um, you know, I am I am uh, waist deep in a 
year-long quarantine online Dungeons and Dragons game myself, and I'd be glad to talk about Dungeons and Dragons exclusively sometime. Um, but you know, I have that sort of dream someday. Of are you? I, my I own. mean, your waist deep. Are your characters like wading through a river of fundament, or are you? you know? <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> that is not something that has not happened. <laughs> Uh, it, is, it. it is something of a metaphor for our world. Uh, <laughs> but OK, so some of the concepts and we'll, we'll link to this talk, some of the concepts that came up in the talk that also come up in some of Matt Colville's other talks that I, I also I think something about them struck me after finishing up WandaVision and and also looking forward to potentially seeing Black Widow and seeing uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and some of the other hero stories and how much I missed the Marvel Cinematic Universe while it was gone. I mean, I, I was at the point where a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, I've been sitting here in my little basement office, you know, watching the the climactic fight scene from Endgame and just weeping, which I think I've mentioned maybe once or twice. I feel like we've talked about everything. Um, but uh, but at any rate, Matt, uh, you want me to throw you something out of Matt Colville's talk and throw you tell me, me a, what you think about yeah, it? Yeah, throw me a bone. Throw me a throw me a, a, a bone of understanding plus two. So action heroes in general are not protagonists in the sense that we would understand them from the Greek. That is the ones who who you know are the ones who instigate the action. Uh, the action heroes that we know of are overwhelmingly reactive and only do stuff when circumstances really force them to do it. Right. Uh, and and this was put out. One of the ideas that he one of the. Uh, examples he brought up was John McClane in Die Hard, how he calls the police a bunch of times. Even when he gets a machine gun, he still tries to call the police, right? He does not go in guns blazing to kill all the terrorists as anything but an absolute last resort. Um, so, yeah, I'll toss that out there. This notion that that action heroes are are reactive, not proactive. I was thinking about it particularly because with WandaVision, you get the sense that they – that Wanda was maybe more proactive and they had to kind of force her to be reactive. But anyway, what's your first reaction when I say something? I mean, that's, that's interesting. She was proactive. She was proactive in the sense of she created the, the hex and like, um, you know, but, but reactive in, uh, you know, in the sense that she did it as a kind of a complex response to trauma. And that, you know, that was kind of re-traumatized by seeing Vision's body, spoilers, for WandaVision, seeing Vision cut up into little pieces. And that, like, it it was interesting. I was thinking about mystery box stories generally this week. Mm. Uh, sorry, not to go on too big of a tangent. But no, I was, no, by all means, I was, away. I was thinking about mystery box stories th- this week, and I, what I realized is that inside the mystery box is always trauma. <laughs> there's, there's really nothing else that goes inside the uh, uh, that goes inside the mystery box, right? It's it's like it's always a, the the deep dark secret is like something bad happened to this person and they're having trouble processing or integrating it, and that's why people do the 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 things they do. Yeah, I I wonder if it's. I like, would say that in Die Hard, what's inside the mystery box is a whole bunch of bearer bonds, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that. 
that might be one of the things that makes Die Hard so great is that there is a reason that everything is happening. Yeah, bearer bonds are such a great financial instrument for <laughs> uh, for action hero purpose for action movie purposes for like MacGuffin purposes. Yeah, action, they're lighter right, than gold. gold right, exactly. Really and you can't gold is really heavy. You can, and it's not like this is a suitcase full of you know put options on a you know. GameStop. Um, the, the, hey, I, we talked about money plane, and it was crypto and money plane, right? They had to download all the crypto from the money plane. Uh, <laughs> no, we actually didn't talk about money plane. We, oh, you didn't. That's no, right. We didn't. I talked about money we plane. We were with on myself. Slack. Yeah, we were on Slack slacking about money plane, and we decided it's not good enough to. Uh, we it's, didn't decide anything. You decided. <laughs> no, that's true. We, in your sense, decided because it was definitely more than one person who didn't think Money Plane was good enough to talk about. But I wasn't on that. No, you were the only one. You were the only one who watched it all the way through. Uh, You're the person who <laughs> made the uh, made the determination. So action heroes are reactive rather than proactive. The the thing that my mind connects it to. I'm actually staring at my bookshelf. Um, and in the middle of, of my poetry shelf, there's one book, Pete, that, uh, is thicker and taller than all the rest. Do you know what Ooh. it is? Do you know what it says? It says Spencer the Fairy Queen. <laughs> I was going to say Spencer for Hire, the novelization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, translated by John Dryden in, uh, in, you know, rhymed couplets. No, um, Spencer's the Fairy Queen. It is, uh, you know, and when I think of, of action heroes, I think sort of, of quest narratives. And like one of the, one of the things about a quest narrative is that the, a lot of time, even if the kind of the motivation, there is some kind of, uh, intrinsic motivation to to go on the quest. The quest is sort of given to you, you know, like the quest has kind of an extrinsic source. And like Joseph Campbell theorized this as, you know, the call to adventure and the refusal of the call. Um, but that there is a, there, there is a, a sort of external stimulus, right? Like, or an inciting event that is not, uh, you know, that is not, um, uh, uh, generated from within, from kind of like an internal locus of control. So the, the, it's, it's, it would be very different to say, like, I don't know, like, uh, I, I woke up this morning and, and, you know, uh, unprompted, unprompted by anything began a regimen of, of healthy eating and regular physical activity. Right. And, and it would be a lot more, a lot more of a, of a, uh, quest narrative to be like, uh, you know, my doctor told me that I was on a dire path if I, if I kept up my, my lifestyle habits. And so after initially saying, yeah, what does he know? He just went to medical school. I, uh, began a, a program of, um, I began a program of, of healthy eating and regular physical activity, right? Like at one, the both, both might actually be the same, you know, concrete but sort of one one is a quest because it's it's you know it's sort of laid on you and you'd sort of rather rather not do the quest but the quest is it because it's hard you know like the the, <laughs> the quest is hard i'd i'd rather stay home and watch videos from the the general convention but the uh the um the thing is you have to take the quest because not, there is like an extrinsic reward. Um, 
you know, and this is before you learned that the journey was that the, the, the treasure was the friends you made along the way, but there's some sort of extrinsic reward. And like, there are, you know, different conceptions of what this is in chivalric terms or in like coming of age terms or, you know, whatever that, that, uh, attends successful completion, um, successful completion of the quest, which is, you know, it's an interesting thing. It is an interesting thing. It's a, it's a bizarrely passive way, you know, when you think of like the dynamism that we associate with, uh, with action heroes, you know, look, John, John Wick didn't want to get back into the business, but you killed his dog. Yeah. You know, yep, yep. <laughs> you killed his dog. There you go. Yeah. It's funny because when I look over at my bookshelf, the biggest, brightest, thickest book that immediately catches my eye is the uh, graphic novel volume of Akira that uh-huh. I borrowed from our mutual friend John. <laughs> where I'm pretty sure the main characters in Akira, there's nothing about their situation that's at all voluntary. <laughs> right? Like, it's. Uh, are you familiar with Akira? At yeah, all? I saw it as a, on like VHS tape in in the '90s, the the um, anime film. Yeah, it's about this one guy who's from Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, so actually, as I'm thinking, I wonder whether part of the allure of accelerationist philosophies and political viewpoints is a heuristically warped notion of reality that's based on quest narrative. Right. The idea that like, well, if we make everything terrible, then the necessary changes that will make the world better will happen faster because Luke Skywalker won't leave Tatooine until they burn down Owen and Beru's house. Right. Except that that didn't actually happen and it wasn't real. Right. right? Like so. So so it's interesting to think about. Yeah. That these things yeah. these things are metaphors. Right. They're not they're <laughs> not a they're not a constructive program of public policy. And it's interesting because because the I, I think I described Matt Colville to you as as a a practical historian of fantasy, right? In that he, he at least his YouTube channel gives you a whole bunch of the history of the genre of fantasy and the various subgenres therein for the purpose of running Dungeons and Dragons games. So it's invested. It, it has a goal, which I think uh, is something that cuts through a lot of the. Uh, epistemological and semiotic complications of discussing any sort of truth as it relates to uh, signifiers, signifieds, etc. What do you really mean? Well, if your goal is to put on an adventure, if to put together an adventure for a bunch of people to play and have fun while they play Dungeons and Dragons and find like personally rewarding, that's a different sort of goal than like any goal you might have at all in terms of talking about fantasy. Like my goal is to make is to improve the world by changing the way that people think about dragons. I don't mm. know. Uh, but, um, wow. But, uh, you could, you could raise a lot of venture capital with that, uh, with yeah. that startup pitch, you know, how do you, you wanna... tra- how do you drain the train, the dragon within you, Matt? That's the question. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, okay. So, and I'm thinking about, so the, cause the idea is that players in these games are very risk averse. So they will oftentimes not, do the thing that moves the story forward unless you absolutely force them uh, that uh, that you you have to compel them to do it. You have to make something happen that forces the players to uh, to move forward. Well, that's and, hold on. That's that's interesting. Let me let me pause you right there, because yeah. that like when you said in our outline, when you said players are are risk risk averse, my mind went to sort of behavioral psychology and the the sort of one of the central insights of that discipline, uh, especially as it applies to economics or like behavioral economics, I guess it's called, is that people are more loss averse than they are sensitive to gain. And so like the way we have of thinking about risk is messed up, like we'll work harder to 
you know, given equal probabilities of a, of a good or bad outcome, we'll work harder to prevent the bad outcome than we will to bring about the, the good outcome. And we sort of feel those things, um, instinctively differently. But what you're saying is that players take on the characteristics of the action hero, right? And that like, uh, that you have to motivate them. You have to motivate them out of their complacency, uh, because the quest is hard and they'd rather stay in bed. And that like, uh, that, that to, to that extent, we are all, uh, John McClane. You know, we are all Luke Skywalker. We are all the Red Cross Knight pricking on the <laughs> on the plane. Um, and that, even like, when we're doing imaginary things for strictly our own entertainment, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Even when you're engaging in like fantasy play to escape your miserable life. Right, like the, the you're, Whoa, you're, man. you're a couch. Whoa. Even even then, you're a couch potato. You know. Sorry, did I did I uh, did I offend role playing <laughs> to role players in in general? I'm sorry. All right, I, roll, roll attack with advantage all right? <laughs> against a DC of like twelve. Uh, so okay, great. Um, God, well, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need a, a saving throw against angry comments. The, so we're, we are talked we talked about two sides of this, which is the degree to which this feels alienated from the reality, and the degree to which it feels simpatico with reality, and I guess. The mechanisms are not vague. The notion of loss aversion as a hardwired – I hate that term as it refers to people uh, because, you know, wires are kind of a poor explanation. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I hate it too. The, um, but like as an evolutionarily reinforced tendency in people's, you know, in people's kind of makeup. And, and an observable behavior that seems to be cognitively or neurologically reinforced rather than like strictly psychological potentially. Mm. Um, perhaps, I don't know. It was the kind of thing that's been so consistently observed that it seems to defy strictly cultural definition, the notion of loss aversion. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's to think that we watch so many heroic stories about people who are so loss averse. What, what's, I mean, what are some examples that come to mind? <laughs> it's funny because, because my, my diet of entertainment during quarantine has been so weird, uh, because it's been bereft of things that have been too upsetting and so it's sort of like, yeah, I guess the only person, the person that I watch who isn't risk or loss averse is Guy Fieri, who I watch all the time, mm. <laughs> who is a hero for our time. Although I guess you could say he's risk averse and loss averse in a certain way, because there's that expectation that he's going to come back to old, reliable sorts of food, even if he goes in and he has some duck coffee or something. It's going to be like, and then we're going to eat a cheeseburger, right? Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, some examples of smothered of- in donkey sauce. Yeah, the do- you know what? Any man whose uh, whose signature condiment is called donkey sauce, how loss averse can he be? Because I can think of 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 certain losses as you know, as in uh, control of your bowels that certainly <laughs> attend the the. You consumption. know why it's called donkey sauce, right? No, I actually don't. It makes fun of it. It's just aioli. So it, all the <laughs> sauces is aioli, and I think he, I think Guy Fieri calls it that to mock it, but but it didn't catch on that way, right? It caught on as like this trademark, this kind of which kind of matches the uh, festive Western spiky haired frosted tips kind of walking Shrek mentality that people ascribe to him, even if it's not really so much who he is as the, you know, do you know he was mentored by Mark Summers? 
uh, from Double Dare. It, it, there's just so many. It, I've learned so much about Guy <laughs> Wait, Fieri. seriously? He was mentored by by Mark Summers? But yeah. I, I confused Mark Summers with Lawrence Summers there for a second. <laughs> and that, that would be a very different person you to be mentored by. You know that Guy Fieri by. was mentored by Lawrence Summers, who determined that he had a high standard deviation, which meant he had a high <laughs> potential for excellence. And then Lord Summers was fired. Uh, so that man, that's a that's a reference to an old scandal. That's a, that's <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Old, man. And that think about that scandal. Well, one of, one of the things, Pete, that we have to at, at least entertain, you know, is is the idea that Donkey Sauce doesn't have the aptitude for uh, <laughs> covering covering a whole you portion. Can of- take that. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, so so thinking about okay so so what I'm thinking about now is I'm thinking about the Snyderverse which uh-huh. is upon us like a 4 hour shadow looming over a uh, happy afternoon picnic right which is I think next week is is when we get the Snyder when Snyder comes roaring back right Oh does he oh god in in so. all of his in all of his blue and orange glory Unless it already came out. Well, you you heard that you got to you actually got a chance to watch the Snyder cut of the Justice League if you watched the Tom and Jerry movie on HBO Max because they'd screwed up and posted the Justice League movie under the Tom and Jerry heading. And then they figured it out. But like nobody got to watch more than three hours of the movie because it took them like three hours to figure it out. That is that uh, is hilarious. And Pete, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll interject tangentially just to say that um Briefly on Netflix, uh, Stuart Lee's latest uh, comedy uh, concert film was uh, briefly um, mislisted under Sharknado. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so he got an hour out of that, which is the subject out of, of his next show. So, I mean, when you if you think about it, obviously, the stuff that Matt Koval is pointing out, he even comments on it is stuff that you would get in a screenwriting class. But he's talking about it specifically in terms of the practical application to heroic fantasy, which for me gave it a fresh perspective in looking at some of the stuff that we've been watching. Think about Wonder Woman, right? Like Wonder Woman 1984 in particular. One of the big problems with that movie is Wonder Woman's reluctance to engage with the world is is really forced and 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 excessive to like as in her degree of social skill is not commensurate with her degree of social isolation and mm. she has to be socially isolated in order to be a reluctant hero right in order to be forced to re-enter the world and help it again uh except that she does she seems totally fine and she isn't in her character communicating this sense of regret Right. Or the sense of closed offedness or a reluctance. Uh, I mean, the first thing she does in the movie is enthusiastically save a whole bunch of people in her costume. So this idea of and then and then like befriend someone who's, you know, having social di- a new employee or something or whatever uh, Kristen Wiig is, who's having like social difficulties at work. Right. She like becomes yeah. a good like kind of mentor, coworker, kind of, you know, social safety net for for this person. She's not just sitting in her apartment with a suitcase full of bearer ponds, is what you're saying. Yeah, right, right, right. But in order for her to be an action hero, there is this rule that people are following that she has to be reluctant and forced to do what it is that she has to do. Can we think Which, of a counterexample? Like, is there a is there an action hero who's like, bad guys, yeah, let's go punch some people. <laughs> oh, man, I mean... Well, the counterexample that he that Matt Colville gives. Oh, he gives one. Well, counterexample he gives to everything he talks about in this talk 
is Star Trek The Next Generation, huh. where like no, he, he thinks nobody on the Enterprise is interesting, and they all are exactly the same after they do everything as before. So it's like Captain Picard isn't reluctant to go land on the planet and explore it. It's like let's go down to the planet, right? Like uh, let's 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 go let's go and and uh, go to the planet, and uh, then we'll come back and we'll be fine, right? Um, and so there's right, none yeah, of exactly. The, they they yeah. they leave exactly. They leave every episode exactly the way that that yeah. they came in, but more so. Mm. And in that sense, they don't they're not reluctant. I mean, again, there are counterexamples in various specific episodes. But to think of a better example of a because because there is an old heroic ideal of the hero is just sort of going out there to make things happen and get things done. Um, but it also tends to be somewhat somewhat, you know, I'm using the word commensurate a lot, but it's, it tends to be in parallel with a certain moral bankruptcy that we uh, we, we find an. Un, un, uh, uncomfortable uh, in in our in our heroic stories, but still yearned for in some degree. So, who is a hero who goes out there and gets and does what he's going to do with no reluctance? And uh, um, yeah, that's we may need to leave this as an exercise for the, that because that's a hell of a thing to to put you on the spot for. Yeah, I or can't, you know, she them whatever whatever. I don't mean to make it. I'm I'm looking at a picture of Jason Momoa as Aquaman. Uh, while I say that, which of course everyone should always be doing all the yeah, time, exactly. is looking at pictures of Jason Momoa as Aquaman. But I'm looking at a picture from the Snyder cut of like the cyborg and uh, or cyborg Wonder Woman and Aquaman, um, and uh, and sort of thinking, well, Aquaman is like, oh, I don't want to be king of Atlantis. And I've complained so many times of superhero sequel movies where it's like, I don't want to be a superhero anymore. And it's like, you know, FFS. Right. I came here to watch <laughs> Spider-Man, not not Spider-Man. Get yourself together. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that's sort I mean, of related. I, yeah. That's sort of the, I have a related phenomenon where the people are like, wait, what? Why is all this strange stuff happening to me? And, you know, in stories of the the supernatural or whatever. And, and, you know, as soon as you get the 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 sooner you get to that ghost ship moment, sort of the better. Uh, the better we are. Like I, you know, I don't want to watch someone like struggle to comprehend their new reality. I want to watch some people. I, uh, you know, I want to watch Spider Man go sling some webs, fly through <laughs> yeah. the fly through the air like a damn spider. So here's an example: The Expendables two. Roars <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. into the movie on this armored vehicle at the beginning of the the beginning of The Expendables two is is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I'll give I'll give a good example and a bad example. Because I'm thinking about the beginnings, the two of my favorite beginnings of movies. One is the hyper violent beginning to The Expendables 2, wherein The Expendables raid this uh, generic nondescript facility for some generic nondescript evil government. I don't even remember what it is, but they are barreling into it in an armored vehicle, right? And like there's multiple teams operating and they're blowing up everything and there's huge, huge gushes of gore and everything. And so there's no. There's no occasion for it. It's just like the Expendables are on a job and they show up to this thing and they do it and they roar in with no hesitation at the very beginning of the story. And this is a big departure from the Expendables one, which is more serious and brooding. Right. And it's like, oh, I have to go get a tattoo for Mickey Rourke and feel bad about myself. (laughs) Expendables two is the is where they turn it towards being more comedic and Expendables three. They take it to the extreme. Now, granted, 
then they fridge uh, um, Hemsworth the the lesser, Hemsworth minor, not Hemsworth the lesser, Hemsworth the younger, uh, Liam Hemsworth. Uh, gets fridged in like the first couple scenes of Expendables 2 and that makes everybody sad and then there's a variety there's then you have various sorts of reluctances and situations like that that are created by circumstances but the Expendables as a joke you know roar into the situation with no reluctance I, I remember the airport fight where Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger show up and Arnold Schwarzenegger's firing the 50 caliber machine gun out of the smart car while he's doing donuts in the airport lobby. Uh, it's another just, oh, God, Pete, just to hear you say those words lifts my heart. <laughs> Terminator 2, right? Yeah. Uh, he, he has no reluctance, but he has artificial reluctance because he has constraining programming and because everybody else is reluctant to trust him. And so in that sense – that puts the heroism of the story in the contemporary sense more on Eddie Furlong and Linda Hamilton's character because the Terminator in Terminator 2, T-800, has no reluctance to do what he, he is. I, you know, I mean, later on in the Termina- Terminator franchise, you actually really do get, but I don't want to be a hunter-killer robot. Yeah. It's so hard being a Terminator these days. <laughs> well, well, well. I want to I stay home plugged into my USB port. <laughs> play Untitled Goose Game on my face. Uh, <laughs> honk, honk. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm also thinking, I mean, you can go through all the animes, right? Like, oh my goodness, where it's just like, oh, I don't want to fight. I don't fight. I mean, Goku is a great example of somebody who will fight anybody because he loves it. But there's also a comedic aspect to it because everybody knows it's kind of funny to cut through all that tension that's been built up around all these different relationships um so yeah so that that's one of the concepts in this talk is this idea that that action heroes are reactive not proactive players are risk averse and all these joseph campbellian concepts of the call to adventure the refusal of the call and then also this notion of uh you know the the stable world gets disrupted by an event uh that that you have to consider whether the villain wants the the world to stay the way it is or whether the villain wants the world to be different and is the hero's job to uh, stop the world from changing or to to change the world in a way that needs to change, right? Is, is the end result that the hero changes or the world changes, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. But one another idea in this talk that I wanted to jump to is he does talk about stormtroopers being good, uh, which I thought it was interesting. It feeds into one of his other questions that uh, that if you're setting on up an adventure for people to go on, that you should have – expendable villains like it's not a villains but expendable uh, minions or uh or or opponents who as he describes can be dispatched without guilt right mm-hmm. and, and the idea that a story like this an action story require that has violence in it requires that not all the violence carry a deep and profound ethical consideration yeah um though he gives a different reason for why you would do that uh, though I think we might speculate that one reason that you would do this is because, uh, well, he points out that Star Wars is used so often as an example. Let me come up with something different from Star Wars. Um, and, and let's pick something less like quality, right? Like Bella. Let's go pick up something quality. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in space pulse. <laughs> yep. Um, no, what's, what's a, what's a, what's a, what's a good example of an action movie that is like this? Um, oh, lethal weapon two is a great example, okay. which is a wonderful movie. So have you watched Lethal Weapon 2 recently? Not recently, no. Yeah. So so Lethal Weapon 2 is great because the villains are South African racists. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is a really underexplored 
uh, mode of villainy in action movies. And so you have uh, the, the idea is that the uh, you know the South African embassy is involved in the all sorts of criminal dealings and um, and they can't be they can't be caught for anything in murders and whatnot because they have diplomatic immunity for prosecution. So it has that great line that everybody who loves action movie lines should know, which is, you know, diplomatic immunity. And then, and then uh, Danny Glover's some of the effect of has just been revoked. And he like shoots the cable holding up a shipping container, which like falls and crushes the, uh, the, the uh, main antagonist. Oh man. But, <laughs> Do you remember like you had to be before CGI, you had to be really, It'd be really inventive, you know, to create some <laughs> some sort of novel comical means of I, death. I hope but. that I'm remembering that correctly, but I might just be filling in the gaps because it's been a long time. But the point is that the henchman, the villain in that movie is like a bald, fat dude, right? Not fat. He's not fat, but he has a big jowls and he gives the impression of roundness, sort of like a Winston Churchill kind of look, right? And uh, he might even be played by Chuck Denomalos from back to, from a uh, bill, bill and Ted's bogus journey he's played by the villain is played by uh is it is it josh josh ackland um who is from in the hunt for red october and yes it is denomalos from bill and ted's bogus journey so the 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 big bad guy is an older man who's bald but his henchmen are all younger Right. And they have mullets or a variety of sorts of jackets and stuff like that. But the big bad guy looks different than the little bad guys. And the point being that the key ethical question in the movie, which is the related to the character question of Mel Gibson is the cop who's crazy. Right. He was trying to tell you. Uh, and Danny Glover is the cop who's very by the book. And so you have the situation where Danny Glover, who's a by the book cop who follows all the rules and who wants to retire, has to confront a very by the book villain who does everything by the rules and is also very racist, which he, you know, is is then personally threatened by and humiliated by over the course of the movie. And so there's the Lethal Weapon movies follow an arc where sort of Murtaugh approaches Riggs. Right. And Riggs approaches Murtaugh and they reach kind of mutual understanding. Mm. Um, and this one, it's it's about Danny Glover realizing that he's not going to follow the rules because the the justice in this situation and the the end of this threat is more important than observing, you know, international treaty conventions as a police officer. Uh, but the point is that if every single henchman were protected by diplomatic immunity to the same degree that Arjun Rudd, the head henchman in Lethal Weapon 2, is protected by diplomatic immunity. Uh, like if he, if they never got to beat up or fight anybody over the entire course of the movie and everything had to be like, look, man, you're going to lose your license if you do this, then like there's no story. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and well, so- it's also it's also I mean, there there is a thing, I guess, sort of in terms of the narrative where if every uh, uh, opponent Right. Put up an equal level of resistance equal to, I, you know what I was just thinking of? I was just thinking of the Mario universe. Right. And I was yes. thinking like the Goombas and then the Koopa Troopas and then the Piranha Plants. And what else do you get in Super Mario Brothers? You get up to the Hammer Brothers, Hammers, and you get maybe Buffalo, Buffalo Bills. The bu- or bullet bills, <laughs> bullet bills. bills. Bill would be different. Yeah, yeah that's uh, uh, and, and like Lucky Two throwing the spinies at you. Yeah, oh, all yeah. these variations, this sort of ascending variation on turtles, right? Like the turtles, the beetles, the spiked beetles, the turtles that throw hammers, and at the very end is the biggest, meanest dragon turtle, right? That's around, right? 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and if and, they and, all if they put all put up in equal, like even within even within the kind of the lesser hench folk, there are um, there are like there's a uh, gradations of of difficulty. And actually, I love like turtle versus hammer turtle, right? Because like if all turtles were hammer turtles, that would not work. But if if no turtles were hammer turtles, you'd be missing something. You know, it would be like, uh, some aspect of the, of the games, um, some aspect of the games, like, uh, increasing tension would, you know, not pan out. So you can't, yeah, you can't, they can't all, all the fights can't be boss fights. Um, right. but in a, in a situation where the kind of like this, you know, kinetic or violent action is, is the kind of reigning metaphor, you know, you, you need some Goombas that you can stomp right before you right. get to the boss fight. And yeah. that's, that's and, just a necessity of the, of the mode of storytelling that you're in. Yeah. And one, one of the practical considerations that Matt Colville brings up is the notion that, Things that happen early in the story are going to be giving, in this case, the players information about what's going to happen in the future. Well, at least that's the idea. In order for in order for the players to feel like the information that they get early in the story is worth something, you should make it useful to them at some point later on. So if they encounter an orc, right? And they're like, oh, it's what is this thing? How does it work? How does it fight? Like, what is it vulnerable to? If they go to all the trouble of coming up with all this stuff and then there are no more orcs for the entire point of the entire future of the campaign, it's like, well, why? Why did I fight an orc? Why was the orc the first thing that I saw? Right. And and there's this idea. Well, in in his his talk, he goes through a whole example of this where, where with a different kind of monster where it's like, well, give them different variations on the monster you've already given them so that the information that they've learned can be reapplied. And I wonder if this works also as an audience member. It's that right, the first it's encounter. It's an orc, but he throws hammers. Is what right, right, right. It's an orc, but he's red. And that means if you hit him twice, right? And this, that's like the Moblins in Zelda, right? Yeah. Everything, this works. It's interesting because it dovetails so nicely with the technical constraints of 8-bit and 16-bit video games, <laughs> right? Because it's like, oh, we changed the color, but we used the same sprite, right? You know, we just, we sort of moved it and we like, change, we didn't change the color of the sprite, we changed the color palette, right? right? And in that way, we changed the, what the sprite was to the, to the eye. Um, and so I thought that was interesting too, this notion of, the things that you learn early on in a in a fantasy story because you don't know how the world works because it's fantasy then it helps it is it is useful helpful nice uh something that gives, helps keep people invested for that information to be useful later which i think also goes back to the talk about mystery boxes and i think what we're talking about here is is um a different functional approach to some of the things that the mystery box does or rather a different theoretical approach to some of the things the mystery box does right we don't tell you the things about the world that tease you early on in order to encourage you to wonder what's going to happen next so that we can frustrate it. It's because we intend to repeat it and we intend to kind of run the changes and run on variations on this theme, even unto our conclusion. Right. Um, so the idea of a pattern rather than a mystery, um, although mysteries are often patterns, I thought was interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, and, and that's why that's one of the reasons why you might want a boss villain who looks and acts very differently from their underlings, uh, because in that sense, the the moral questions related to the boss villain then get adjudicated when the boss villain is around. Uh, and that also allows you to get the information you need about the all the ancillary stuff that's happening without having to confront the ethical questions. And this leads me to the big thing that he talked about, 
that that I was really interested in, which now that we've gobbled up so much wonderful time, that which I love spending with you, Matt, by the way. I just I hope I love spending it with you too, listener, and I hope you like it as well. Um Aww. is uh he poses three different kinds of challenges that you should give to uh adventurers who you're walking through a game. And you know, you might consider them to be things that heroes would have to tackle in a heroic fantasy story. He also associates them with the Aristotelian rhetorical concepts of uh, pathos, logos, and ethos, which I think is also interesting. And uh, we can talk about that. But B, he qualifies them as physical challenges, mental challenges, and ethical challenges, which uh, are in this is again about Dungeons and Dragons. And he defines physical challenges as anything that involves rolling That's dice after, to get results. After dare or double dare. Yes, uh, comes exactly. the physical challenge. Got it. Yes, that's what Guy Fieri learned when he was in boot camp. No, this he was on the new next Food Network star, and Mark Summers was one of those. Um, physical Mark Summers is Food Food Network posse man. Um, so is Alfonso Rivera. I, no, I used to watch that. I mean, I and and yeah. I actually like. I actually some of the discourse on that on that show was really really interesting. Like because they were they really laid it out there in a very. Uh, unvarnished way as to like what they were looking for which was like a personality who can have have a relationship with a viewer over a whole bunch of different types of engagement and i mean now it would be also different kind of media of engagement because we want someone in television we want someone in short form video we want someone on podcasts we want someone in live events we want to you know uh someone on the food network cruise right like all all those all those things and it was a uh, next food network star was a really interesting sort of early competition and he won as i recall over a, a people who were a lot better um cooks and right. what what they were gambling on and they were also like really unvarnished about this at the time um sorry Pete you like you like you 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 like dipped a madeleine in donkey sauce and i ate <laughs> it and it like all this memory is rushing back to me because i i remember watching the season i remember guy fieri being born nascent guy fieri spring you know like uh 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 springing fully formed like uh, like athena out of the head of the ew scripts company Company, um, <laughs> that like uh, um, they were gambling on a more male, a more male slanting demo, you know, like they were, they were gambling on a lot of the the um, Food Network hosts at the time were very sort of soothing and very kind of domestic, you know, and that like their the idea was that their their viewership wa- were women who were at home, like watching their programming during the day. You know, and there was some like maybe more like travel and lifestyle stuff uh, on at night. But like, can we do is there a, you know, kind of in your face, more provocative? Can we have that sort of personality? And we're going to gamble on yes. And like that, that that was something that someone literally said. And like, you know, two decades and billions of dollars later, uh, you know, it's um, it's you know, we are all donkey sauce now. We're at least, you know, the human <laughs> yeah. bot. The human body is made up of at least sixty percent donkey sauce. <laughs> In the sense that there are emulsions, or there's like <laughs> lipids and and uh, and uh, polar polar solutes and whatnot. You know, if you um, if you go to the to the now defunct restaurant in Times Square, they actually have donkey throwing a hammer sauce. <laughs> 
Wonderful. I, I also like how you were talking about Melissa de Arabian without naming her specifically, though. Uh, Is that who it was? Well, well, so, OK, so I'm looking through the the winners of the next Food Network star and a bunch of them. I know I haven't watched the show. Uh, I know the stories of a bunch of them because I watch the Guy Fieri extended cinematic universe and which is doing all it can to prop up restaurants in the uh, in the United States right now. Um, And a lot of these people have, as you mentioned, appeared in a whole bunch of different stuff. And a bunch of them are on the Tournament of Champions show I'm watching right now. They've been either guests or contestants on Guy's Grocery Games. They've been on uh, they've been judges on various shows like. Uh, what I maybe uh, Rachel and Guy's celebrity cook off or like uh, the kid cook off thing that might have shown up somewhere. Um, some of them I, I probably have hung around Chop here and there, uh, and they've had their own shows, right? Yeah. So like, so go through them. Uh, season one, right, is uh, is Dan Smith and Steve McDonough, who I don't recognize. Huh. Uh, Party line with the Hardy Boys, eh? And then season two is Guy Fieri. Season three is Amy Finley who's a stay-at-home mom, right? Then season, and, then, and I'm reading this off of a table that lists their perspective. I'm not saying that's, I'm not the one saying that that's the most salient fact about her. It's listed in the listings about the episode, yep. right? Um, season five is Melissa D. Arabian, who's also a stay-at-home mom. And she did, I think, 30-minute meals. Um, and so those two who came a little no, bit Rachel later. No, Rachel Ray was 30 minute meals. Oh no, she went, what was Melissa Hi, Hi I'm Rachel Ray and I make 30 minute meals. <laughs> that means in the time it takes you to watch this show, I'm not throwing shade. I have watched a lot of 30 minute Rachel, meals. Uh, let me say this. I have not watched a lot of Rachel Ray, but I recently watched season one of Rachel and Guy's Celebrity Cook-Off. Rachel Ray is great, eh. right? Like she's really good on camera. She's really good with people, even though she's also not the best cook. Right. And it's is fairly narrowly. Focused yeah, but she's, she's again, this this sort of this thing. She's like a personality that you can kind of form a relationship with at a distance. Right. And yeah. and follow it through all kinds of like media and commercial yeah. opportunities. I had so, a Rachel Ray coffee cup. Yeah, well, we have a Rachel Ray uh, nonstick skillet works yeah. totally OK. Um, the <laughs> no, uh, Melissa Arabian is ten dollar dinners, which is oh, different than 30 minute meals. 30 a minute little meal. bit. Yeah, you can you can spend a lot of money on it on a. 30 minute meal, right? Like yeah. just by putting some, sprinkling some gold leaf on it. So Rachel Ray gives you three kinds of challenges. She gives you the physical challenge. <laughs> she gives you the, uh, the what, the ethical challenge and yes. the other kind. Right. Okay. Uh, we were just about to talk about Artist Aquaria and Luda can't cook, but we'll save that for another time. <laughs> this is the, the new, by the way, Discovery Plus is the best streaming service, period. It has ludicrous trying to learn how to cook Indian food. You can watch it right now today. Uh, anyway, uh, um, uh, and Jeff Morrow, the Sandwich King. Okay, so in the context of Dungeons and Dragons, the physical challenges are the tests that your character's abilities are put to, right? Do you can you fight the monsters? Can you leap over the chasms? Even to the extent of can you can you pick the locks? Can you you know uh, disarm the traps? Even stuff that's mental in nature in, in terms of how it's flavored, but is still kind of is your striving, you know, is if your courage is put to the sticking place, can you can you get it done? Or, or is it beyond your limitations? Right. Is like the physical challenge. The mental challenges are stuff like puzzles that the player has to solve uh, that happen in the game. Mm. Um, and then the ethical challenges are being confronted with conundrums that the player that have no good solution or no ready solution. And the way he phrases it, and this is what I kind of wanted to bring up to you, is uh, the question of what kind of people are we? Mm. 
Right. And so it makes like me the, think about my, yeah. Like the Kobayashi Maru or the, uh, or, yes. or the, the episode of, of Star Trek The Next Generation where Wesley is scared of his, uh, officer candidate school exam because he's going to have to face his darkest fear. Uh, spiders? <laughs> well, no, it's, uh, you know, you, you remember the whole psychodrama with, with Wesley and, and Beverly and Picard, right? Like, uh, Picard, uh, was, uh, Wesley's father was, uh, Mr. Crusher's, Mr. Crusher, uh, uh, senior who, who was, uh, his commanding officer and like, uh, didn't save him or was around when he died or so was his commanding officer when he died and, you know, uh, bears this sort of guilt of having someone in his charge, someone under his command, uh, die in, in the way that he did. So the, the, the whole Wesley psychodrama anyway, he's going to have to go and, and he's, you know, the whole thing, spoilers for Star Trek, the next generation, it, <laughs> it aired in uh, 1987. So, you know, you, you've had time to watch it. Um, he goes and there's this like, uh, there's this sort of elaborate simulation of a situation where he has to, you know, either, either leave a, uh, there's like a cave in or something and he has to like leave a trapped teammate to die and escape to complete the mission or like stay and die himself trying to extricate the person. I forget exactly, uh, how it turns out, but he's like clearly re-traumatized by this whole, by this whole thing. But then like, you know, Picard says, you know, it's a valuable lesson or something like that. Acting Ensign Crusher. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm boning your mom. So the, the, uh, yeah, the ethical challenge is who, what kind of person are we? It, it sort of reveals something to you about yourself rather than accomplishing something external to you. Right, right, right. And so um, and also just the notion that the conundrum might be really difficult, that the ethical question that might be posed to you might be one that doesn't have a ready solution. And you have to make the bad, the right bad choice or the bad choice that's right for you that reflects to you, reflects on you. OK, let me use an example. Let's talk about Blade. All right. Because Blade is awesome. Let's talk Blade about is it. Another, yeah. Blade is another hero who is not reluctant to be a hero at all. Blade, he's got the sunglasses. He's got the trench coat, right? He's totally cool with killing vampires, loves to do it. Uh, beginning of the first Blade movie, we see Wesley Snipes just kill a whole bunch of vampires. Awesome, right? Um, then the but the movie poses him a variety of problems and obstacles to stopping the sort of ascent of this blood god who is being unleashed by uh, Stephen Dorff himself in vampire form. Uh, no, it is not actually Stephen Dorff. It is a character played by Stephen Dorff, but it might be it might be better. Um, but Blade discovers, among other things, that like, you know, his mom is still alive and, you know, there's relationships he has with people. The old, the old thing about like, oh, we have somebody we have somebody hostage, right? Oh, I think I think it's that he has a friend who gets bitten by a vampire, right? And, uh, and and so, oh man, there's all these strings that Blade has on him that are supposed to dissuade him from doing the thing that he has to do, which is chop off Steven Dorff's head or whatever, right? Um, if, if, spoiler alert: he doesn't stop from doing it. He he goes through with it, right? Um, but this notion that okay, um, if you're going to, um. Okay, so so let's imagine. So 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 in Blade, right? Blade's friend Karen. Blade has a friend named Karen in this movie, right? Uh, is a doctor, and she is bitten by a vampire. She's like studying vampire blood. 
because she's a hematologist and she's bitten by a vampire. And there's the sense that that if Stephen Dorff carries out his plan. Um, uh, oh, I see. Here's the conundrum. OK, Stephen Dorff drains Blade's blood. That's the situation I'm getting to. Right. Where uh, where where Blade is not going to be able to fight back and stop the rise of the blood god. Karen, Blade's friend, gives Blade her blood to get his strength back so that he can fight Stephen Dorff and the blood god. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine a situation wherein this is a difficult decision for Blade to make. Mm, right. Yeah. Does he right? take the vampire blood? Like, does he does he does he take the blood from his friend who isn't a vampire? Right. Oh, at that point, by a vampire. Oh, yeah, at this it. point, she's not a vampire, but she's been bitten by a vampire and he could kill her. What's going to happen? Right. Um, what if it did kill her? Right. What if Blade had to eat one of his friends to get the the strength to fight Stephen Dorff? Right. Mm. Um, and and the, the question would then be, well, what kind of person are you? Right. Well, in this case, he's the daywalker. Right. But uh, but I think I think. In Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, you might run across that kind of choice more often than you might in like a, you know, Marvel derived action movie where we like to give where they like to give the characters a way out of being totally awful. Right. By any axis. Right. It's because it's like, well, there's the the I guess that's my question. To what degree do we tolerate hard choices like that? And I guess hard choice is the wrong word. Is there a term for what I'm looking for here? Like, it's not even like you can, I mean, you can make the utilitarian calculus, right? And you could say, well, it makes sense for Blade to drink Karen's blood because if he doesn't kill Stephen Dorff, the blood god creature, then the whole world is going to end, right? Uh, and like, that's bad. And Karen was is screwed either way. So, yeah, like, it makes sense to me. Flip that trolley switch, baby. <laughs> right, right, right. So, it's sort of the trolley problem. But at the same time, like, do we really want Blade to be utterly indifferent to like the death of his? new best friend (laughs) like like is that is that the kind of like we are invested in the kind of person that blade is in this fictional story uh right and we're also invested in the kind of people that we are in real life again asking posing this both in terms of you know in real life there are ways that this is irrelevant in real life there are ways that this feels relevant right it's like well you know in real life you should probably make decisions that benefit a large number of people or, or, you know, or have a sort of preponderant benefit rather than things that like just benefit your closest friends. Right. Um, but you know, we aren't often in life making decisions that involve Stephen Dorff unleashing, unleashing the blood God on the world. Right. So it's like, you know, are you really going to sacrifice? I mean, once you're a parent, it's no, like, it's like, sorry, no. no, of course not. But the, yeah. the, yeah, you sort of have a special obligation to your, to your family. It's, I, yeah, it is interesting. I wonder, yeah, I wonder, like, I, I often think of these things as kind of mapping onto a kind of, you know, a kind of experience that we have in a lot of like the, the, in a more day to day sense, you know, a more emotional resonance, but we don't like, we don't unleash the, the blood god. We, we unleash the blood god like a, a little bit at a time, right? Like every time we buy, you know, I electronics made made under inhumane conditions, right? Like we unleash the blood god a little more, or a or a you know, I don't know, nice uh, nice suit jacket for nine dollars from H and M. Like that's not, um, you know, it's it, it's not catastrophic, you know. And the like uh, the, the idea the idea of kind of staving off catastrophe, you know. I don't know. Every time we we 
what uh, d- dump a little more carbon into the atmosphere, right? Like these these things are incremental, and it's it's difficult to kind of map it onto that. Uh, it's difficult to kind of map it on to, to that sort of thing. And, and like, I, I wonder like how often it actually comes up in the course of, of just kind of natural living day to day that sort of that stark of a, what kind of person are you, uh, question, you know, as opposed to the kind of uh, the, the sort of much smaller tragedy of the commons type uh, type ways, which admittedly is a, would be a terrible thing to have to dramatize or to kind yeah. of storytelling around. Yeah. I guess what I was thinking about all this before I realized I didn't know the plot of the movie blade as well as I thought I did, which made that whole thing kind of fall down the stairs a little bit. But, uh, but then again, we should all rewatch blade. I don't think it would hurt anybody. Blade two also blade two is great. Never a bad time. <laughs> Never a bad time to watch Blade 2. Always a bad time to watch Blade Trinity. So um, the the idea – when I think about people who are carrying the brunt of public moral judgment, I think that the axis on which that judgment rests seems to not often be particularly important, right? Uh, when I think about somebody that I might be mad at because they did something bad or wrong or hurtful to other people – there are discussions like I, I see and participate in discussions about, well, it's bad because they did this or it's not bad because they did this or this thing they did is more important than that. But there's still the notion that anybody who did something terribly wrong on any particular axis in our world of kind of fluid blame would catch heat for it. Right. And in a situation. So if anybody ever carries ever enters into a no win situation, then there's no win. <laughs> right. Like like the thing that you know about them is the sort of wrong that they chose to commit uh, or commit by omission versus the thing that they didn't do. Right. Um, I, what I'm trying to wrestle with is quality of character as a ameliorative pejorative axis, like good or bad versus quality of character in. OK, we know we know the sort of decisions that you would make. And we can judge you by the by the persistence of those decisions. Right. Um, so, for example, you know, if you would save, you know, five people that you knew really well and leave behind 100 people that you don't know. Right. But if you save the 100 people that you don't know or gave them a slightly better chance. Right. Then three of the people you knew really well would die. Right. Like you could imagine scenarios in which somebody wouldn't blame them for that or would blame them for that. But the whole the whole rubric of blamelessness versus whether they can be blamed um, seems inadequate in that kind of framework. It's more it's like, let's assume that everybody is doing something wrong. What do we know about this person based on the kind of wrong thing that they choose to do? Right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, that's interesting. We don't we don't have a lot of of tolerance for that, right? Like the the as you say, the kind of the like I, I like the the description of of our our current sort of cultural milieu as like an an uh, atmosphere of fluid of fluid blame. I've heard it said. Um, I've heard it said a slightly different way, which is like, uh, Twitter has one main character every day and you just pray like hell that it isn't you. And that like, uh, you know, the, the idea, the idea of character, right? Because of the availability of kind of like context free 
sound bites, it's, it's, it's almost like it gets sort of foreshortened or like flattened, you know what I mean? Like in, into a, a sort of two, two dimensional thing. And, and I wonder if like, this is the kind of challenge that we're having sort of more trouble speaking about because we don't have a uh we don't have like there isn't like a contemporary discursive drink framework that lets you um that lets you talk about you know that lets you talk about hard choices uh that you know are made uh, by imperfect people with imperfect information and you know are doing you know are are doing the best we can right like we don't have a vocabulary for how how to choose among a number of bad options you know and that and, i don't feel like i have a vocabulary to talk about that as is evidenced by the stammering that i'm doing sure right? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, well, I think it's not, I, I don't think it's, I wouldn't lay that entirely at your feet. I would say that it's not something that we, you know, like, uh, uh, there, there needs to be sort of a Rudyard Kipling of the, like, you know, of the, the, the 2020s or something to, to, um, you know, I don't know, kind of eulogize the American empire, uh, at its, <laughs> at its cruelest and most, uh, you know, at it, at its, uh, tipping point into decline. I, you know, something like that. You mean in the 1830s? <laughs> uh, I, I always, I always like, I always get amused by these sorts of time frames. but yeah, it's because there are certain situations. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse people, but it's interesting. It's just it's just it's just interesting to not feel like you even know how to talk about it. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of a practical example. I mean, a practical example is what, like, like freaking like Pete Rose and like Barchi Amati, right? <laughs> like, like Pete Rose gambled on a bunch of baseball games yep. that he was coach in and played in, I think. Right. Whatever. If you know the details of it, sound off in the comments. And he's banned forever from the Hall of Fame. Right. For doing this. And and you and you get the sense of like making it's not that Pete Rose is not the protagonist here. Right. The protagonist is Barchiamati, Right. Who has chosen to ban, you know, Charlie Hustle, you know, a person who in the context of playing the game of baseball is perhaps the most admirable player that's ever been because it's a player who without profound physical gifts of the sort that, you know, really changed things fundamentally in terms of your success at sports was able to rise to legendary status through hard work, determination, to a certain degree, dis disregard for his own safety and the safety of others, which is not necessarily maybe to be praised as much, or maybe it is, I don't know. Um, but this idea that like, there are things that when I was little before this all happened, you know, they told you to be like Pete Rose, uh. right? And then, and then you have to make the decision to either, ban pete rose yep right and, and and kind of strike that legacy or you have to admit you know you have to like forgive or accede to the gambling right and it, and it, and it's you would think that it's like well i the gambling is a really important rule and i'm a stickler for the rules so you know what we'll just do without the legacy of pete rose but you know what there's a cost right because the baseball hall of fame without pete rose in it suffers right at least in my opinion, I think. I think, and again, what even is the Baseball Hall of Fame? I think we even might have talked about that at some point in a, po in a well, podcast. Right, because it it becomes something. It becomes about something other than than baseball, right? Like it becomes about these kind of extrinsic things that are not 
strictly speaking baseball related. So yeah. it's the it's the something else Hall of Fame. It's the yeah. you know it's the baseball intersection of baseball and these other concerns Hall of Fame. And then you talk about well the steroids right Barry Bonds right um, and these notions of when you make those decisions. I think one of the things it tells you is, well, what kind of person is the person who made that decision? What do they value? And it's interesting that we think of the banning and the asterisks of players like Pete Rose, Barry Bonds, you know, uh, I guess Mark McGuire or whatever, Jose Canseco. Um, I should just throw somebody in there who didn't get banned just to, like, get heat on Twitter, like Paul Molitor or something. <laughs> but, like, we think of the bannings as reflections on the characters of the players, when in this context, in the terms of like action movie, fantasy, adventure, heroism, what is heroism being forced by circumstances to rise to an occasion that you would otherwise avoid with every fiber of your being, right? You know, you're being called upon to ban Barry Bonds from the Hall of Fame, right? Or ban him from baseball for life, right? Or whatever it is you're going to do. And, you know, well, what did Barry Bonds suffer from, right? What did he do? Well, you know, he broke the rules in a way that was already being flagrantly broken by other players who weren't being punished for it, right? And, uh, I mean, I remember there was a great uh, – there's some great interviews with Ken Griffey Jr. where he talks about his relationship with Barry Bonds and how there's sort of two roads diverged in a yellow wood, as it were, and one of them led to a whole bunch of steroids, and the other one led to, like, washing out in your 30s, which is what happens in baseball if you don't take steroids. And that, and that and, has made all the difference. Exactly. One way or the other, right? Um, and the notion that, like, Barry Bonds was was not unmotivated personally, right, to do steroids. Oh, no, he he chose to do them because he was pissed off that Mark McGuire had been doing them. And he was a better baseball player than Mark McGuire was. And now Mark McGuire was all super famous and everybody loved him because he's hitting all these home runs because he'd done a whole bunch of steroids. And it's like, well, if I did the steroids that he did, well, as you can see, he beats Hank Aaron's home run record, right? Mm. So like, so, so again, it's like, okay, I don't, I'm less interested in the moral decision that Barry Bonds makes. I'm more decision interested in the decision that the person makes who bans him because there is no good answer. Yeah. But I also don't necessarily think that not banning him is a slam dunk either, right? Because you have to confront on some level what's going on with steroids or else just by not confronting it, you know, you you set your policy and you set your what you think the kids should be doing in their high schools. I mean, this is um, what the this is what the asterisk is for, right? Yeah. But this, by the way, would be a great way to end a D&D campaign. It's just like you finish, you slay the dragon, you come back to the castle and you find out that like the king's vizier has been embezzling money <laughs> and, <laughs> and you have to like determine, are you going to kick them out of the castle? They have a family <laughs> like that they can't bring with them. Yeah. Right? So like, does the family have no father or mother or does the kingdom have no vizier? Is there nobody who can read the accounting? Right. Or like, are you punishing this sort of thing? I mean, this just sounds like high adventure to me. This is like Conan the Destroyer. Right? Absolutely. It's- yeah. The, the, <laughs> really the kind of the actuarial implications of all of this are, are you know, <laughs> I'm the, just, I just think that it's interesting. It's an interesting way to think about adventure. It's a, um, it, well, Pete, I, I think maybe the, the adventure of our conversation uh, on this episode is, is coming to an end. So uh, listen, I regret to, to uh, inform you that we've banished Mark Lee from the podcast because he's embezzling all all of our money and so Ma, what no a, what about the cost we already <laughs> the overthinking podcast without mark lee we're banishing ourselves <laughs> no, we no, we have not we have not done that mark is the the most fastidious of of all of us and uh, his uh his um 
you know, thoughts would put us to shame. Uh, no, the, uh, the thing I'm saying is that we uh, we might have have ended this session of our quest, but I propose I, I propose we make these podcasts a regular thing. We might even do it weekly, Pete, you and I. Dude, can we do a four hour podcast next? <laughs> it's just no. four hours long, multiple intermissions. Just like I'm going to read the back of this bag of oyster crackers. <laughs> like just <laughs> oh, as though we would need the to resort to that to, to no, fill four hours. <laughs> yeah, now um, we can talk. About Man, are are okay. Let's uh, let's end on this. Are you planning to to watch? Of course. I mean, am I going to watch the Snyder cut? Sure, in like six sittings. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's yeah, okay. Yeah. There, there it is. That's that's the thing. Like our our internal threads, overthinking our threads on uh, Wandavision started pretty early in the morning. So I suspect that some of you East Coast people like watched it before starting work on uh, on certain days, and I I never did. I waited until until Friday night. Um, but but like uh, I wonder if like starting at at you know getting up six in the morning, Snyderverse. Snyder cut, not getting off this couch until 10, you know, <laughs> the, the dog can pee in the hallway for all I care. I am watching all four hours of the Snyder cut. I of am Justice glued League. to the Snyder verse, like gorilla glue to a broken pot. It is. It is <laughs> I, I am. I want to see all the Jared Leto Joker that can be force fed into my face. <laughs> like let's, 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 let's open that mystery box and just spill out all the trauma. This is like Pandora's mystery box, right? This is uh this is the suicide squad without the purple Lamborghini. Is oh, that's, is. Yeah. There, there you go. All right. Well, we'll, I'm, I'm not sure how we'll be responsive to the, to the Snyder cut next week. I'm, I'm, I don't particularly want to call our shot in this, uh, in no, this we respect. might not do it. But yeah. if we do do it, we should track all the times that the heroes force reluctance for no good reason. Yep. Like, oh, I a- can't do the thing. I can't do, I can't do whatever nonsense I have to do with this movie because I have to be reluctant in order to come off as a hero. So like I have to go. I was going to say I have to go to the grocery store. But now we're just talking about One Punch Man, which would be <laughs> a great a great one to talk about in the context of all this. So. Um, let's, uh, yeah. yeah, let's, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll track all the, the reluctant heroes and Pete, you know, in a way you and I are reluctant heroes because we, we get on this podcast every week, uh, even though we hate the sound of our own voice. <laughs> well, right. you just have to ask yourself, are you a Sylvester Stallone judge dread or are you a Carl Urban judge dread? <laughs> That's really all it boils down to. Um, <laughs> well, I, either way, Pete, I am the law. <laughs> let's uh let's call it there thank you very much for listening pete thank you as always for a wonderful conversation um hey leave us leave us some comments if you uh you know if you have any responses to the uh narratological concerns that we raised i guess they're sort of game they're they're ludo logical uh ludic concerns right but the um we were kind of uh, associating them with uh, narratology. We'd love to keep the co- the conversation going in the comments. We will be back next week, Snyderverse or no, for more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.
You know what the real future is, Matt? What? Crypto crosswords. <laughs> you trade them like money. And only the people who solve them have money. And that means that you can never have more than the ones that you've done. And then you can trade them. And then you can write options against them. And you can become fabulously wealthy. God, they sound like they sound like non-fun tokens. <laughs>